Hi, 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 everyone. This is Kim C, and you're listening to The Year of Underrated Stephen King. This is a literary book podcast where this university fiction teacher is making my way across the underrated works of Stephen King, providing analysis where I can, and preparing my heart for the titles that will most assuredly break it. Hi, 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 everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome to an extra special episode. This is part one of six, as yes, 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 we are definitely doing it. We are going to be discussing the 1996 Green Mile in the installments of which it was released. I am super excited. This is super fresh and new and I am very new to this story and uh, can't wait to talk about it with you according to these six parts. So I think that splitting it up is going to be a really fun experience. It's going to allow us to be tourists a little bit, lean in really heavily to the text and observe the writing we've got here. This first part, we are going to examine this initial installment, which was released in March of 1996, and that is The Two Dead Girls. A month after that one was released in bookstores, we have The Mouse on the Mile. The third installment was Coffee's Hands. The fourth was The Bad Death of Edouard Delacroix. Number five, The Night Journey, and number six, Coffee on the Mile. So this is going to be super fun, lots to discuss, specifically the editions of this book. Oh my goodness, my my king collectors out there, uh, please come, come, lean in, good, good ladies and gentlemen, dear sirs and madams. I... <laughs> So I had to humble myself a little bit. Kim C is a hardback snob. I prefer to only read hardbacks when I have a physical copy of the novel. However, I definitely had to get my hands on the paperback edition for this experience. So I have the very small, very little skinny uh, six part installments that was released in 1996, about a month in between each other, because our king decided to really raise the bar and experiment with a method that uh, many traditional novelists, aka Charles Dickens, did all the time back in the late 1800s. This was how novels were released in these bite-sized little chunks. So we are going to dissect the Green Mile very much like a tray of delectable pettifors. I love pettifors. I love a, a simple bite of deliciousness. And that's what we have here. So we are going to spend the next couple episodes observing this novel in the paperback form, just to kind of uh, feel old school, which is challenging. I really miss the hardcover, and I know that when you stitch the novel together, it's the same thing, but I did really uh, want to channel the spirit of this paperback release 
um, in uh, the way they occurred in 1996. So I was in third grade during that time. So if there were any more seasoned constant readers out there that would like to share the experience of being in bookstores in 1996 and experiencing the Green Mile uh, installment release, I would love to hear from you. I think that would be a lot of fun. But not only do I have the six very small, very skinny paperbacks, uh, which chronicle all six installments. I also have a paperback with a green slip cover. It's a hard green uh, slip cover case. Pretty cool, even though I'm not the hugest paperback fan. I couldn't resist this one. And there was an additional author's note from King. So the original release of The Two Dead Girls has one from 1995 in which King kind of talks about a international publisher contact of his, I believe his name was Ralph Vincenza, kind of proposing a novel released in installments. And if he wanted to do the Dickens thing and give it a go, and of course King always wants to challenge himself, especially when it comes to form, so he did. And uh, based on book one alone, uh, this is pretty freaking special, guys. More on that in a second. I'm freaking out. I'm getting really excited. There's some beautiful writing happening with this. Um, but he, uh, inside the 1996 paperback with the slipcover, there's an additional note from King from 1997, where it kind of talks about how, um, this novel was received, etc., um, and how the initial uh, bubblings of the story took hold, how John Coffey was originally Luke Coffey, how the narrator was kind of like Brooks from uh, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, just kind of a cart pusher, uh, somebody who is very old and very seasoned who had witnessed a lot in his life. So some really interesting stuff. I'm so hungry to learn uh, more about the collected editions out there because, uh, super fun, if you have the paperback in the 1996 one, when you get to the very end, uh, did you guys know there was a Green Mile contest where if you wrote in to a certain address in Medford, New York, and answered the following question, that question is, why does the mouse, Mr. Jingles, choose Delacroix as its special friend? So, yeah, in 50 words or less, <laughs> you could have won um, a, an autographed Green Mile manuscript, of which there were 36 winners. Uh, you could have also won an autographed Stephen King library. There was, oh, this is just 90s glory. All of these sweepstakes and contests and prizes. So, uh, did anybody win? Because I want to know. I would love to know the experience of being a constant reader in 1996. What was that like? What was it like to live this, to experience the, the story in installments? Was it fun? Not so fun? Uh, <laughs> because I can speak for my generation, the millennials, we have a very hard time being patient. <laughs> yeah, it's not our forte at all especially in the land of distraction and streaming services we all have. Um, yeah, so what was it like to have to be forced to be patient, constant readers? So uh, you Gen Xers out there, I would love to know. 
Yeah, so this is going to be a ton of fun, and for this episode, we're going to kind of dance around the spoilers because, technically speaking, this is my first time reading The Green Mile. However, like a lot of people, I did view the film, Frank Darabont's beautiful, beautiful film, which we are going to talk about at the end of this episodic coverage. Um, I did watch the movie years and years ago. I think I only saw it once, you know, probably in the early 2000s. I remember crying a lot. And that's about it. I, I'm a little foggy on some of the details with the characters mentioned. I remember some of the actors who were in it, of course. It's pretty iconic. It was amazing. And I believe some Oscar performance, uh, some Oscar nominations were doled out for this. Very, very special. But I have never read The Green Mile before. I knew going into it, it was going to be rough on the heart, but we're never afraid of that because we are in it for the beautiful writing. Yes, we are, uh, good sirs and madams. So we're going to power through. And I had a really lovely time, <laughs> even though I had to humble myself with this very small copy. It's so little. It's so little and skinny. And I'm such a hardback brat. I always have a hardback. Um, paperback is just not my bag, guys. <laughs> I'm just, I'm a super brat about it. Uh, really picky. But I did it. I humbled myself and I read the paperback version. I wanted the installment to just swiftly end. I did not want to be tempted to cheat and immediately sneak into the next uh, the next few pages because I totally would have. I know myself. So this was a way to just kind of recreate the experience that so many had in March of 1996 when this first one was released. So in this episode, we're going to be a little tourist with this book. We are going to do a kind of mini version of the typical analyses we have on the show. We're going to look at characters. We're going to talk about the cast we've met so far in this installment. So we're going to get some names memorized and we're just going to do a brief summary of what happened in this episode like what what do we got what do we know what's going on we'll also talk about some of the strengths what i really enjoyed and that will of course include a snippet of beautiful writing i am so 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 into this already just reading the first 92 paperback pages was extremely enthralling. It's super beautiful already, dear friends. Oh my goodness. Uh, the Green Mile, if you didn't know, won the Bram Stoker Award for Best Novel in 1996. And in 2003, I believe the UK awarded it as one of their all-time favorite reads, which of course they did. Uh, UK folk always, always love the best stuff and the world has to catch up so this is beloved and I can see already in this first installment this is a special story this is a beautiful story and it's already uh, going to work on my heart I'm already pretty emotional by what's going on but I'm trying not to jump ahead I'm trying not to get ahead of myself and I just want to be a tourist with what we have now. And this is why this experience is going to be so fun because it's going to force us 
to lean into the text, which is very difficult sometimes because especially when we have lots of mixed media associated with the work or people start theorizing and I start nerding out with like symbols and all kinds of stuff, what we have to do in order to avoid spinning out is to lean into what we've got here in the text. What do we have directly in front of us? So we're going to get really, really close to the source material as we work our way through this first part, which I am very, very excited about. And I hope you guys enjoy this experience. We're going to make it as rich as we can but it is going to be a little bit more condensed than normal because these are these are little snippets these are tiny petty fours one delicious bite at a time as we get to know this this beautiful cast of characters this uh, this setting that's already making me incredibly emotional and uh, we've already got some very strong writing narrative structure i'm getting ahead of myself now so uh let's if you haven't read the green mile this is a great opportunity to just backtrack a little bit get your hands on the audiobook and maybe listen to the first two hours if you want to meet us exactly where we're at if you have a copy with you definitely make your way through this first part, The Two Dead Girls, um, and you'll be right on track with us. I would love, love, love if all of you guys could read along with me because that's exactly what I'm going to do. I have only read this first part, and as of tomorrow, I will begin reading. Tomorrow being Monday, I will begin reading the next installment, which is the mouse on the mile. So we're going to do this together, much like we did the Lisey's show Apple TV series week by week. We're going to try and make it work and have a ton of fun digesting this very beautiful story. So I think it's about time we head back in time. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to 1932 and we're going to have a chat with some prison guards. So uh, yeah, I hope you'll join me and I'll see you in the next section. Dear listeners, did you know that 1932 was the year of John Coffey? So that is the opening line that kicks off the first eight chapters in the paperback edition, of course, that sums up this first part of The Two Dead Girls. So a kind of a ramshackle summary of what's going on. I don't really want to read the dust cover because... You know, anybody could do that. But what I kind of, I just want to report back on after reading this first installment, here's what I know. I know that as the reader, we are somewhere 
in the region of Cold Mountain, which the only Cold Mountain I know is in North Carolina. And Cold Mountain is also a really wonderful novel by Charles Frazier, which I believe may have been released around the same time as this one. Uh, so I don't know if maybe King was inspired by the novel or the title or knows Charles Frazier. I don't know. Uh, they also made a really long movie <laughs> a couple years after with Jude Law and Nicole Kidman. If you are a Civil War person, which uh, a lot of people are, uh, yeah, I think I've heard good things about that film, but I just remember it was very long and the novel was a little bit wild. Uh, back on track, we are somewhere in the Cold Mountain area in the year 1932. We are in a prison, specifically the death row area, where the electric chair is used. And I don't exactly know the historical um, context. I probably should have done that beforehand in terms of when the last ones were still, when they were finally uh, decommissioned. I believe it went for a really long time. I, I think they were still using it potentially in the 70s or 80s. However, please don't quote me on that. I just know the electric chair was used for a very long time and apparently that was one of the main inspirations or the kind of focal point for this tale. Um, according to some of King's author notes, the electric chair or what we have, Old Sparky, is in use. So we are in a prison, specifically a wing of the prison that's referred to as Green Mile, and it's referred to that way because of the floor. It is a lime green floor for reasons unknown, just haphazardly that's what it's called, or that's how it's colored. And uh, when you walk the Green Mile, depending on which direction you take, either left or right, leads you to life where you could hang out in the yard, get some fresh air, maybe socialize a little bit, um, or on the left. I probably mixed up those directions knowing myself, so it might be switched. Um, but uh, depending on which way you turned, one would lead to the electric chair and you'd be done. So what we have in this first episode is the introduction to the cast of characters that inhabit this prison. We're going to talk about each one of those in just a moment here. But specifically, we are getting to know a man named Paul Edgecombe, who's the supervisor of this Green Mile block. And he is a very reminiscent kind of guy. More on that in a little bit. But in this installment, we meet an inmate who's brought in named John Coffey. John Coffey is a very tall, very strong, really a hulking presence of a human male. He's uh, told in the novel to be six foot eight inches, over 300 pounds. He has a deep voice, but a very quiet, gentle, sensitive nature about him. He also seems a little on um, not not super intellectual or that's not well perhaps I'm jumping too soon I don't know if we can infer that from the text at this moment but 
All we know as the reader is that John Coffey is said to have committed a heinous crime, and that crime is the rape and murder of nine-year-old twins. They could be eight. Shoot. <laughs> Either eight or nine-year-old twins, Cora and Kathy Dederek. Their parents are Klaus and Marjorie Dederek, and John Coffey was found at the scene of the crime, cradling their dead bodies as their hair was covered in blood, and and he was immediately, of course, um, tried as life in prison, and he is now on death row. So that is what we learn in this installment. We get to know a cast of characters who work at the Green Mile in this year of 1932, and our narrator, Paul Edgecombe, has a pretty painful bladder infection. And that is about it. So let's kind of dive into the additional characters we have in this installment, specifically the Block Squad. So in addition to our narrator, Paul Edgecombe, who is the supervisor at Green Mile, we have Brutus, nicknamed Brutal Howl, which is kind of interesting. That's a fun, fun name. But according to the text, he seems pretty level-headed, pretty gentle. Um, the next one is Dean Stanton. So he's a name we're kind of getting to know. He's interacting with some of our block squad personnel there. The last is, or the well, we got two more. The next is Harry Terwilliger. He's a guard there. Harry, so we're learning about him. And the last, we have a, thus far, a kind of sanctimonious little, little jerk by the name of Percy Whit Wetmore. Yeah, not Whitmore, Wetmore. Percy Wetmore. Um, yeah, so he works at the Black Squad, um, much to the sort of, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, nobody likes him. Nobody likes this guy. He's got friends in high places. He's definitely alerting the reader that he is potentially villain status or not liked, completely disrespected, irritating, inappropriate, obnoxious. So that's what we've got thus far. Percy Wetmore, not not looking too good. So let's move on to the inmates who we have. We get to know in this first chunk. We've got Arlen Bitterbuck, which he is a native inmate. I'm not exactly sure on his tribe. It may have been mentioned, but I will hesitate to list the incorrect tribe, so I'll come back with that at a later time I'll, with Arlen Bitterbuck's tribe. His crime is not known in this installment, unless I missed it. If I did, please let me know. Um, but I'll double back and follow up on Arlen Bitterbuck if I learn more. The next we have Edouard Delacroix, uh, or Edward Delacroix, uh, pardon moi, mon français, eh merde, <laughs> my French is really terrible, so if I'm mispronouncing that, please forgive me. He has a sweet little mouse, so we've got an introduction to his little pet. There's a little guy scurrying around the Green Mile by the name of Mr. Jingles, and Mr. Jingles is Edouard's a uh, very special friend, and I guess they're kind of a team. They're kind of featured together, and Edouard takes great care of him. He's very doting and loving and sweet. Um, and Edouard was convicted of 
rape, murder, and arson that killed several people. So this is not a good guy, but in this in this chunk of the story, he seems very mild-mannered, sweet, not a problem to the block squad. And then lastly, we have John Coffey, who I mentioned a little bit already. He's very tall, very big, uh, very gentle, and um, is very adamant about his last name being spelled co correctly. So when he says his name, he says, John Coffee, like the drink, but spelled different. And that just warms my heart so much. I don't know why. It's just pure character. It's pure sweetness. And I don't know. I'm already like, my heart's already being crushed by John Coffee, and I just met him. So uh, granted, uh, I know I mentioned I saw the movie, but we're just gonna stick to what I know. In The Two Dead Girls, as far as I know, John Coffee is a murderer and he killed two uh two sisters brutally um it was terrible and as the reader that is what we know so that's our cast of characters we've got the block squad the inmates and we have a cute little animal we have mr jingles who i love him already <laughs> i'm such i'm such a sucker for animals and it's terrible because when you love animals and king works chances are they get murdered brutally it's awful god i hate when king hurts animals i mean i hate when king hurts anybody let's be real but first you know if you're a pet person if you have fur babies out there you know you know what i'm talking about you know the pain i speak of it's it hits a little harder so that's our cast so we're going to talk about what i really love 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 what i feel is working extremely well in this installment and that is Oh my gosh, our narrator. Oh dear ones. Okay, so our narrator, Paul Edgecombe, is reminiscent. He's reminding me of some of my favorite King narrators. I thought about Red, of course, in Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. Um, which I know coincidentally is another prison narrative, but also Gordy from the body or um hope springs eternal these are narrators who are reporting to the reader from long lived life like there is so what what's special about paul edgecombe right away is that this is paul's memory we are visiting this story through his recollection and a lot of time has passed he is omniscient he is an all-knowing source of information and he is hopscotching around time. So I know that a lot of us constant readers out there love this type of narration from King because it's really suspenseful. It's kind of like a built-in climax ready to go because all he has to do is twist it just a tiny bit and you're hanging on to the next chapter. He can say something about like, well, it ended badly, as you know. Like something so mysterious like that, and you're just like, what? What do you mean? Uh, so I love this, and there's a lot of melancholy associated with Paul uh, already. It, it makes sense. His job is the supervision of the execution of inmates, so that already seems a little bit heavy, but 
you could tell that the people he is speaking of at this time are going to resonate very deeply or have resonated with him very deeply. There was a line that stuck out so strongly in this first part where Paul mentions, I became obsessed with coffee after that or something like that. Like there was something about, um, I did a lot of reading on coffee or he became an obsession of mine and it's like wait a minute what do you mean we just met him so already King is playing with some powerful narrative concepts some really beautiful positioning of pieces but the narrative strength here is so so good so that's one of my my favorite parts is our time hopping omniscient narration that's soaked super soaked in melancholy and it's working very well so i'm really enjoying this perspective of paul edgecombe i'm glad it's not a uh invisible omniscient narrator who's telling this story this feels like a very lived in memory that we are walking through and it's very immersive. Uh, the time culture exploration is also very strong. So we have, uh, you know, we, we have to remember that the Great Depression was in 1929. So we have a lot of, um, we'll have a lot of that kind of still a uh, part of reality. We also have um, the southernness of this location, which all we know is it's Cold Mountain, and North Carolina is my guess. I don't know if it's actually North Carolina, but the South is mentioned, the South, which if that's true, it's amazing that John Coffey ever made it to the sheriff's office knowing the South, as horrible as that sentence is to say. So then again, you know, Civil War history, depending on where North Carolina was, I think that was a Confederate state. So yeah, I, it's my guess that it's North Carolina. It is not specific, which <laughs> in lit classes, they would tell me not to do that. Technically, I don't know. I don't know where we're at. Um, but the South has been mentioned and it has talked about visitors driving all the way up. So it seems maybe it's not so south, but the geographic um, mystery is alluding toward the south. And we also get some nice but subtle nods to the fact that it's the early 1930s. There's no television. There's barely radio. Um, this is this is a a place of very little creature comfort. It's stifling in the summer, it's freezing cold in the winter, um, and there's, yeah, there's uh, very little creature comforts allowed. Um, we also get some very old school details about straight jackets being used. So yeah, we are, we're in it, we're in this place. So contrary to Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption where we, we really felt the immensity of Shawshank and like all these inmates and all these characters and the prison guards who were really brutal and terrible, we have here, 
together. Um, it's this feels small, guys. The the perspective is on this very small cast and crew in this tiny slice. We have no idea how big this prison is. We don't even know what the prison's called, where we're at. So it's a little bit like a play. We're kind of operating with very few spotlights on the the action, which is pretty cool. But before we head out on this section, I did want to give you a brief reading sample, of course, of course, because we have, oh god, you guys, it's so beautiful. We've got some gorgeous narrative content present, and this, this slice, of course, there were a few I wanted to share with everybody. This one, I think, encompasses what I was talking about of that omniscient narrator soaked in melancholy. So this is in the tiny, skinny, very little <laughs> paperback. This is toward the bottom of page 90. I shook my head. Outside, the wind gusted again. In the angles formed by the beams, cobwebs shook in feathery drafts like rotted lace. Never had I been in a place that felt so nakedly haunted, and it was right then, as we stood there looking down at the splintered remains of the spool which had caused so much trouble, that my head began to know what my heart had understood ever since John Coffey had walked the Green Mile. I couldn't do this job much longer. Depression or no depression, I couldn't watch many many more men walk through my office to their deaths. Even one more might be too many. I asked my mother for one of her hankies, Brutal said, so when I felt weepy and small, I could sneak it out and smell her perfume and not feel so bad. You think, what, that mouse chewed off some of that colored spool to remember De La Croix by? That a mouse? He looked up. I thought for a moment I saw tears in his eyes, but I guess I was probably wrong about that. I ain't saying nothing, Paul, but I found them up there, and I smelled pep peppermint same as you. You know you did, and I can't do this no more. I won't do this no more. Seeing one more man in that chair just about kill me. I'm going to put it in for a transfer. I'm going to put in for a transfer to Boys Correctional on Monday. If I get it before the next one, that's fine. If I don't, I'll resign and go back to farming. What do you ever farm besides rocks? Doesn't matter. I know it doesn't, I said. I think I'll put in with you. Oh, melt. Ugh, melt. And this is how the installment closes, is Brutal and Paul um, finding some Mr. Jingles memorabilia and paraphernalia a little bit. And uh, we don't know what happened, but we know something happened that broke them and that has created a huge shift. And what an awesome way to kick off the next book or the next installment. Um, yeah, but beautiful narration, melancholy. Oh gosh, you guys. Um, <laughs> I'm already feeling it. I am already feeling it. I am, whew, I'm, uh, I, as I mentioned earlier, I, I 
remember crying quite a bit at the film so I know this book is gonna do me in but I'm ready I'm ready to just observe this beauty and take it for everything that it's worth so that's about all I have for this installment I know it's a little bit short and sweet but I hope that you will go back and read this first chunk with me let's do this together it's gonna be a ton of fun uh, please let me know if I missed anything that you feel is really good to bring to light in this first installment. I am ready to meet a character who they mentioned as William Wharton, aka Wild Bill. I believe he will be showing up in the next chunk that is Mouse on the Mile. So I'm ready. I'm going to get started reading it right away, make my way through, make some notes, and we'll be back with more content as we make our way through the six installments of The Green Mile. So I hope you guys have fun. I hope you like it. Uh, I think it would be fun. You're, you're not too far. If you want to jump back and read with me, let's do this together. I think we'll really enjoy it. And I think this is a great story to take our time with to really observe what King is doing here with beautiful storytelling in this isolated little little zone where a lot of drama is going to occur so we're going to take a look at more thank you guys so much for hanging out with me as we observe this first part of six so get ready for five additional episodes we're gonna make our way through this story little by little bite by bite and i think it's gonna be really rich content as we do so so thank you guys for joining me if you have not yet done so it would mean the world to me if you would head over to apple podcasts and give the show a five star rating that would just make my day if you would uh, allow us to reach more king fans more readers um, and provide a five-star rating. If you would love to leave us a review, that would be equally wonderful. We would appreciate that greatly. And if you have not yet done so, please write into the show at Underrated SK. Say hello. Tell me where you're reporting from. Uh, if you were alive in 1996 and were of book buying age, uh, how was this experience? I would love to know from the uh, more seasoned constant readers out there what it was like to be a part of this publishing phenomena and digesting this story and I'm wondering and that's something we'll kind of cover toward the end is I'm wondering if this story is more meaningful because of the way it was released or if you read The Green Mile in its traditional format of all buttoned up all six parts glued together so we're gonna have a lot to discuss as we go forward so lots of fun to be had but I'm looking forward to hearing from everybody regarding these uh, next couple weeks how we make our way through this beautiful beautiful novel that needs more eyes on it needs more people talking about it because John Coffey is forever um that's all I'm gonna say so I'll see you next week for part two of Mouse on the Mile bye bye